Hello, hockey humans of the world. Welcome to Tough Call Podcast Season 3, where I talk about all the latest hits and suspensions around the NHL. Thanks to you folks, I have over 3,000 Twitter followers and over 250 subscribers to my YouTube channel, which is where you'll find my in-depth video breakdowns of the plays I cover here on the audio podcast. Just go to YouTube and search Tough Call Channel to find me there. And to get the most out of your overall Tough Call experience, the best thing you can do is follow me everywhere you can by subscribing to the YouTube channel Tough Call and leaving comments there, following me on Twitter at Tough Call Pod and my other account at NHL Call. And of course, hitting the subscribe button on this Tough Call audio podcast and giving it a five-star rating right now. Thanks very much for the support. I don't want to take the hitting out of hockey. I want to put the hockey back in hitting. Hello folks, welcome to Tough Call Podcast Season 3, Episode 6, which will cover the period from February 16th to March 27th, 2022. My goodness, has it really been that long since I've put out a true episode? I'm glad I did that bonus episode on the Austin Matthews cross-check to the head of Rasmus Dahlin, although I apologize for it basically being just an 18-minute rant, but... The state of the NHL, and in particular NHL fandom, is driving me crazy lately, and that'll come up throughout today's show as well, for sure. Now, I haven't been watching all that much hockey, to be honest, or at least compared to what I habitually watch, of course, other than Edmonton Oilers games and the PHF. I was big into the Isabel Cup there this weekend especially. But as an Oilers fan, I'm very invested in this season, and and plus I have to at least try and carry my weight for the Heavy Hockey Network, which, as you might already know, I'm a member of, and also which you might already know, is a great source for Oilers content. But anyway, I haven't been watching a ton of hockey overall across the league like normal, so I really appreciate now more than ever all the clips I'm being tagged in and, and sent to me to see how I feel about them. And it's a good lesson in never assuming I've already seen something. You might think you're the fifth or sixth person to send me the same clip and you might think, why bother? But in reality, you may be the first, so please keep them coming. And lastly, even though I've been slack in my own content... If you have a podcast you'd like me to be on as a guest, get in touch with me for sure, as some of you have, and I'll gladly talk about anything. Hockey, music, the original Magnum P.I. with Tom Selleck, my door is always open for anything. And now, let's get into this episode's WTFs. Now folks, it's been five weeks since I did a real episode. And in that whole time, the NHL's Department of Player Safety has issued a grand total of five fines and two suspensions. And four of those fines were all within the same four-day period between February 16th and 20th. The five total fines were a fine for elbowing to Adam Rzicica, a fine for unsportsmanlike conduct to Jamie Benn for his shenanigans while sitting on the bench, a fine to Marcus Foligno for kneeing, and of course two fines for cross-checking, one to Dylan Cousins and one to Marcus Niemelainen. The suspensions were to Austin Matthews for his aforementioned attempted decapitation of Rasmus Dahlin, and just six days ago, Nino Niederreiter was suspended a whopping one game for slashing. I think my favorite part of all is that the league has fines for all the things they normally give suspensions for, and they gave suspensions for the things they normally give fines for. But that's where we stand as far as what happened during this time. Now, I'm going to select an incident of the week, but it's not one of the ones listed above. It's an incident the NHL chose not to even touch or look at, and it's the Jacob Markstrom spear on Nikolai Milosh. So Calgary goaltender Jacob Markstrom speared San Jose defender Nikolas Milosh. Markstrom speared Milosh. Go ahead and say it out loud. Markstrom speared Milosh. It's important to make that very clear, to accept it. It is a spear. 
I happen to have a video of this incident on the Tough Call YouTube channel, which as always breaks this play down and says what I would or wouldn't have given for a suspension under the Tough Call system. And I encourage you to join the 2.5 thousand people or so who've watched that video so far. And, and in it, I also emphasize that this was a spear. So why do I emphasize this? Why is that so important to me? It's because the officials called it a two-minute minor penalty for slashing. The NHL rulebook itself considers what Markstrom did so offensive that under Rule 62 spearing, he should have been given a five-minute major penalty and an automatic game misconduct and possibly faced supplemental discipline. This same rulebook says that even if Markstrom hadn't made contact with his spear, he still would have been required to serve a four-minute double minor penalty just for the attempt. According to the paid official on the ice, however, this was considered a two-minute minor for slashing. Legitimately slashing a player in the back of the leg, leaving the crease to follow them as they skate away, then pulling the big goalie stick back and intentionally driving the tip of the blade into said opponent's groin area, all of this after the whistle. All that was considered to be the equivalent of skating after a player with a puck and tapping their stick with your stick a little too hard. Just a tiny little slash or a little bit of a hold. This giant pullback spear after the fact and already slashing the player once was called a two-minute slashing minor penalty. And I've heard a few different theories on this. It wasn't much of a spear, they say. No one got hurt, they say. Markstrom barely touched him, quote-unquote. Milosh, quote, had it coming, quote, that's always a favorite of mine. He had it coming, and I'll respond to that one in a minute. But take a few steps back here, people. Let's make a couple of lists. One list each of things Markstrom did and didn't do. And I'll start with the things Markstrom didn't do to Malosh. Number one on the list of things Markstrom didn't do is barely touch him. Markstrom barely touching Malosh never happened. He touched him pretty hard. That's the end of that list. Next list, things Markstrom did do. Number one, he got ir irrationally angry over someone putting the puck into his net after the whistle. That's the number one thing he did. He freaked out. Number two, he got his point across already with a pretty good slash to the back of Malosh's legs and pants. The Malosh put the puck in the net. Markstrom gave him a whack. That should have been the end of it. Number three, Markstrom got carried away and continued to follow Malosh in an aggressive and confrontational manner even after he slashed him. And number four, he intentionally targeted the sensitive groin area of an opponent with a weapon. According to the rulebook, using what's considered to be one of the most illegal ways of potentially injuring your opponent, i.e. a spear. Yeah, you may think I'm a little bit extreme in making too big a deal out of it, but I dare say I'm not as far off as where we should be as those who don't make any deal out of it at all. To back this up, I'm going to ask you to really consider the common default defensive argument of Milosh had it coming. Markstrom ultimately targeted an opponent and speared him, all because he shot the puck into his empty net after the whistle had blown. That's it! Is it unsportsmanlike to do that? Sure. Is it annoying? Sure. And Lord knows it goes against the precious code. So of course it's okay for Markstrom, or someone at least, to make sure that one way or another, Milosh wouldn't do that again. But let me ask you a question. If Markstrom is so justified in what he did because you don't shoot the puck into the net, it's so disrespectful, all that romanticized code crap. If you think it's bad enough what Milosh did to warrant a spear, then how would you have felt if Milosh had been given a two-minute penalty for unsportsmanlike conduct? I want you to honestly think about that. If your answer is fine, I'd be fine with it, then great. But I can guess at least some of you would probably be pretty annoyed at the ticky-tacky call. Really, we're going to punish someone for just shooting the puck in the net? 
I'd imagine there'd be rallying cries of no fun league and what's wrong with a little gamesmanship because I've heard all that. And if I'm wrong, then I sincerely apologize. But based on how some fans react in similar situations, I have good reason to think people would be violently upset over Milosh getting an unsportsmanlike minor penalty for putting the puck in the net. Because whenever I want to find someone for slashing a player after they score an empty net goal, for example, there's always some inevitable backlash of, come on, he's just blowing off some steam. The game's over. Move on. And, and the same old, he barely touched him. Whenever I want to find someone for anything called unsportsmanlike conduct, it's generally the same thing. Let the players show some emotion, have some character, show some personality. And I'm all for that as a player and as a fan. I'm all in on showing some flavor, but be consistent with yourselves. Be honest with yourselves as fans. If you want that stuff, like this gamesmanship of putting the puck into the net after the whistle, if you don't see that as a big enough deal to punish or even penalize, then how can you possibly think it justifiably deserves a spear well after the fact? You want that spear to be considered a warning slash that wasn't much of anything. You're okay with the official saying, you know what, he had it coming, eye for an eye, call it even. You want that to be the gamesmanship too. Then what though? Play that out. Imagine if Melosh had responded to Markstrom's spear with his own spear again. Maybe a cross check to the head like Matthews did. So we'd have Melosh putting the puck into the empty net. We'd have Markstrom slashing him in the back of the leg, then following him and spearing him. We'd have the other Flames defender grabbing Melosh by the head. What if Melosh turned around then and speared Markstrom? Half of you'd be like, yeah, baby, he had it coming. Let's do this again. And half of you would think, well, that's too far. Melosh is too far there. Eventually, you're going to consider something over the line. We all have a limit. So what's the breaking point? It's different from fan to fan, from player to player, from situation to situation. But the line to be crossed is always moving. How can players stop crossing a line if no one knows where it is? What would your line be? My line is obviously the spear by Markstrom. If Malash had then speared Markstrom back, would that have been okay with you? Would you just wait for a fight? What if there was a cross check to the head like Matthews did? Is that too far? And how would players know how far they should go? Not having a clear line is what leads to stupid stuff like Tom Wilson slamming Panarin to the ice after a scrum. Those are the types of things that lead to Matthews Cross checking Darlene in the neck or Ryan Reeves ripping the hair of Graves right out of his head with his bare hands last playoff. Now, that's too far. You don't want that, right? You don't want people to be ripping people's hair out with their bare hands. I think we can all agree on that. But not enough people want to prevent the things that lead up to those things because that would ruin the game. Really? I say we try it. I say we try calling the rule book as it's written and see how it goes. Markstrom should have been giving, by rule, a spearing major and been kicked out of the game. And we should be talking about what his suspension should be. We shouldn't be talking about anything more than that. Okay, it's time for By Request, which is where I talk about an incident that was brought to my attention by a listener or social media follower. And like I said, I haven't watched a lot of hockey, so I've really depended on this lately. So thanks very much. And this episode's by request comes from Twitter follower Sam Moore at Raider Nation YBR. And it's the Andrew Cogliano kneeing incident with Vasily Podkolzin. And this is one of those situations where the dangers of north-south contact come into play. When you're going in the same direction as your opponent, you have a lot more time to line yourself up and slowly close off the space. You have more control over how, and more importantly, when you make contact. When you're going in opposite directions toward each other, like this one, north-south, you have to make contact at the precise moment they reach you, because if you don't, you're going to miss your chance altogether and they go right by you. 
So if literally any single thing changes in that particular specific moment, you have no time to react and adjust. And that's what happens to Cogliano here. His opponent makes a slight move one way to try and escape contact. And instead of staying on his current path and positioning, Cogliano leans out to his left so he won't miss. It's a natural reaction. But he has no time to get properly set up, so his knee goes out. He reaches out with the closest body part to his opponent, and that is generally always going to be the leg. Luckily, it's not that dramatic a shift, so he leans mostly with his body instead of just sticking his leg out. But it's still dangerous and still should have been a penalty. It's not malicious, there's no intent, but it's a dangerous habit. And it's that instinct to get any piece of the opponent at all costs that usually leads to the headshots and kneeing situations that are dangerous in those north-south scenarios. And now for Here's the Thing. And this episode's topic of discussion is hitting. Hitting in hockey. And now here's the thing. I love hitting. Or as I like to call it, checking. And that's important to me. Checking versus hitting. Essentially, I want as much contact in hockey as is humanly possible. In as many places on the ice as possible. I want contact to happen at all levels. And it should be taught as early and often as any other basic skill. Like skating and shooting and passing and stick handling. The sooner players are introduced to the concept of engaging physically and absorbing contact, the better off everyone will be. Angling, angle of approach, stick on stick, speed matching, gap control. Those terms should be as common to the average player and the average fan as the terms penalty or faceoff. And they definitely need to become more popularly associated with the blanket term of checking instead of hitting. Ultimately, I think the word hitting should be taken completely out of hockey vocabulary. As some of my followers may already know this, and to learn more about that, I recommend listening to my very first podcast episode ever called What is Tough Call All About? But for the purposes of today's discussion, just understand that I don't think the terms checking and hitting should be used interchangeably. And having said that, I believe proper checking, real, legal, beautiful hockey checking is a lost art in real danger of being extinguished forever if we're not careful enough to recognize it. If we're not specific enough or deliberate enough in our definition of what it is we truly want to see and what we'd truly be okay with never seeing again in the game. There's some up-and-comers in the checking department right now in the NHL that do it very well. Some fresh faces. Romanoff and Sider instantly come to mind. And someone who might surprise you as a person of interest who's very, very good at laying the body properly is Kale McCarr. These guys are doing it right, and it's a thing of beauty when they connect. It's poetry on ice, not chaos. But giving the players freedom to launch, freedom to explode up, freedom to take a poor angle and then reach out to get a piece, just like I talked about before with that Cogliano move, Allowing those things to happen without being a penalty or letting lazy players off the hook. It's not forcing them to do things the beautiful way, the way we all, I think, want. It's allowing straight violence to be just as acceptable as technique and beauty in checking. Until we prioritize the things that lead to proper checking, until we ban hitting and force players to be better skaters, to be better positionally, to force checking to happen organically through the natural course of play, as opposed to running around just to get a hit in, the majority of players are going to choose the easy way out. Checking situations develop naturally over the course of play. Hitting situations are manufactured by the hitter going out of their way to make contact. And now here's the most interesting part about it to me is the way hockey has chosen to deal with this issue. The one aspect of hitting that everyone seems to agree on is the importance of trying to eliminate head contact. In the IIHF and minor hockey, 
in most levels, that means a zero-tolerance policy on hits that result in contact with the head. Clean or dirty buildup or technique be damned. It doesn't matter. If you hit the head, you're punished. Now, I have my thoughts on that, as a lot of you already know. And if you listen to my back catalog of episodes, it won't take you long to figure out where I stand on that approach. But regardless, I'm going to focus on the NHL's approach, which is different than the rest. Rightly or wrongly, it's different than the rest. They chose not to have a blanket penalty for head contact. Now, I actually like that, but again, you can find that out in other episodes. Instead, they created Rule 48, which, if you remember, was introduced in the 2010-2011 season and was originally only used to target blindside hits. Of course, the rule was altered a few times, and they finally settled on penalizing all hits that appear to target the head. All hits, not just blindside, and they have to target the head, not just hit the head. Now, first of all, it's interesting that most leagues had rules in place by the very early 2000s, and it took the NHL a decade or longer before they actually put their own rule physically in place. And the discussions leading up to 2010-11 and Rule 48 were very telling. Every group from the GMs to the NHLPA to the officials were highly reluctant to entertain the idea of putting in a blanket rule for head contact like the rest of the hockey universe. And overwhelmingly, the reason for that is the most interesting part is because they were afraid players would stop hitting altogether. The priority of all the people involved in the safety of the players, including the NHLPA representing the players, rejected the idea of a zero-tolerance head contact rule because they wanted to preserve the physicality of the game above all else. And as I've said before, when George Peros was hired as the head of player safety, he was quoted as saying, the mandate of the Department of Player Safety was to keep physicality in the game. That's their mandate, their main course of direction, not to punish illegal activity or educate players on how to do things safely, which I give them credit, they do, but that's not their priority. Their number one priority was to keep physicality in the game. Everyone is so scared to lose the thing that sets the NHL apart, which is the hitting, the the uncertainty of contact, and those hard, hard impacts that we all love to see, myself included. And of course, even the occasional fight. Players, GMs, executive, the Department of Player Safety, and of course, you old school fans. Love you guys. You all agree that the best way to keep hitting in the game The best way to minimize head contact and dirty hits and keep the game clean is to leave the rulebook as is, keep the penalties and suspensions to a bare minimum, and continue to let the players try to police it themselves. Let the fear of being beaten to a pulp deter players from taking liberties or throwing questionable hits. Because otherwise, with meaningful fines, suspensions, and harsher penalties, the fear is all physicality will be lost, not just the bad stuff. All physicality. Now, obviously, the tough call system is based on a tighter rule standard and longer suspensions. All the things that allegedly would ruin the game by eliminating all physicality. I obviously disagree with that assumption completely. And I do that for two reasons. Reason number one is I give players, especially NHL players, way more credit than they give themselves. They're very smart and adaptable. If the dirty stuff became actually illegal and actually punished regularly and severely, players would find other ways to get the same job done. And it comes back to that checking as an art form. They take the precautions necessary to get a good angle of approach, to stay lower, to not leave their feet, to not rise up on contact. They do all the things that create beautiful, safe, noticeably legal contact. It's worked for every other undesirable act, if you don't believe me. Listen, they crack down on hooking and slashing. We don't see any less stick lifts or puck steals or stick tie-ups. They don't not try and steal the puck from each other. We just see players being more careful to keep their stick down, keep it away from the hands. 
They target the areas that are less likely to draw a penalty. The NHL cracked down on holding. We don't see any less board pins. We see players forced to use their skating power, their balance, and their positioning instead of just brute force to keep opponents pinned in place. They don't try and stop pinning each other. They don't avoid contact. They just do it better. So why would calling a stricter standard on hits and checks be any different? Why would players be any less physical? Why wouldn't they do what they've done in every other situation? Take the time and the effort to target areas of the body that are least likely to draw penalties. And they, they would use checking techniques that are least likely to lead to penalties. Players won't, won't check less. They won't be less physical. They'll just be smarter about it like they do every other time a rule is changed. So reason one for me is precedent set by players to adapt already historically. I get why no one would believe me, though. Who am I? I'm not an NHL GM or an NHL player or an ex-player or a high-powered executive. Why would I know more about the game and how it works than those people that are involved in it? Who do I think I am? Right? And I get it. I'm no one. It's just the suggestion I have. Take it or leave it. I get that. But perhaps my second reason might provide some insight. The argument that fighting in the NHL keeps the game clean and honest better than calling the rules tighter and handing out meaningful suspensions would is flawed when you think harder about why the powers that be don't want a blanket rule on head contact. And for example, why Rule 48 was so controversial when it was introduced. Remember, they're worried if there's too many rules called too strictly, it'll take the physicality out of the game. They believe players will stop hitting altogether. And as I've heard from a lot of self-proclaimed real hockey fans, we may as well not even have hitting if that's the case. With fighting, on the other hand, players will keep hitting but be more honest about it. That's the argument. By that very logic, what I'm hearing is players are so scared of being over-penalized, over-fined, and over-suspended, they'd rather not hit at all than be subjected to it. But under a fighting regime, players would still take the chance, they'd hit anyway, and risk a beating. So if under the rulebook regime they wouldn't take that chance, if you believe that, how can you possibly tell me fighting protects players more than calling the rulebook? Because calling the rulebook would stop them from doing that, and fighting doesn't. You're already wrong. And as a bonus, even if under the threat of fighting you believe players are more honest and take less cheap shots... It's hard to know why. There's absolutely no incentive to bother doing that because players are always on record saying they don't care whether a hit is clean or dirty. Good hit, bad hit, if they don't like it, they fight. What player is going to change or go out of their way to be clean if there's an equal chance of being beaten up either way? I give the players more credit than that. They'd adapt to rules. They would find a way to keep checking in the game under any rules. And so far, fighting hasn't worried them enough to try. And now the fun part, the trivia to end off. Last episode's trivia question was, who is the first player to win more than two individual awards in a single season? And the answer, Stan Makita. He's still the only player in NHL history to win the Art Ross, the Hart Trophy, and the Lady Bing Trophy all in the same season, which he did twice, 1966-67 and 67-68, both with Chicago. Gretzky, Bobby Hall and Martin St. Louis all won each of those awards at least once and won a combination of two of them in the same season, but never all three together like Makita did. Bobby Orr is the only defenseman to win the scoring title, doing so in 1970 and 75 with Boston, and in 70 he became the first player to capture four individual awards in a single season when he won the Hart, Norris, and Conn Smythe trophies that year as well as the scoring title. The trivia question for today is, who was the first player to wear the jersey number zero in the NHL? 
And this one was a fun one for me because until recently I didn't know anyone had worn the number zero. And it wasn't actually as long ago as you might think. So who was the first player to wear the jersey number zero? And for fun, why don't you try and guess the team as well? Find out next episode and thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Tough Call Podcast. At Tough Call, I'm not trying to pick on individual teams or players. I want to make the game safer for every player on every team across the league and at every level with no player left behind. I want to cover as many incidents as possible and promote using harsher penalties and player education to meaningfully reduce instances of head contact in hockey. I already get a lot of help from people like you who send me clips or links to incidents or even just a quick tweet or something saying, hey, did you see that? Third period, Bolts-Habs game, checking from behind. Something like that. So if you're ever watching a game and you see something questionable or even a good clean check because I want to promote those as well, send it my way. And don't forget to subscribe to the Tough Call YouTube channel. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and be sure to subscribe to this podcast right now and give it a five-star rating. Together, we can put the hockey back in hitting.